Heavenly Father, what a blessed day you've given us today in this church. Every, every opportunity to meet and to worship you and to praise and learn about you is, is a, a wonderful thing. And some days, Father, it just seems as though you give us an extra measure of your spirit. And it feels like that for me today. Thank you, Father. And Lord, as we get into the word, Father, I pray that the, the mysteries you're going to reveal to us today, perhaps some of us for the first time, could be useful to you in guarding our hearts by the word, giving us a confidence that there's things here for us that will fundamentally change who we are and how we follow you. Give us that confidence, Father, so that we would want the word all the more and that we would attend to it all the more. In a day and in an age when so many have set it aside, we can't assume that we are so much better than they are that we won't make the same mistake, except that you would guard our hearts. And we ask for that, Father, and guard this church. And we ask this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Valentine's Day is right around the corner. Heads up, men. That day reminds us that when you do care about someone and you want to show it, it's appropriate to bring gifts. Gifts are a part of how you show you care for someone. It's a sign of your affection. It doesn't equal your feelings. It's not the sum of all that you feel about the person. But if you choose a gift wisely, if it's a nice gift, it can be a wonderful representation of how you feel. And most everyone loves to receive a gift, which is why we like to give them. It reminds me of the story of a teacher who was working in a very small town, and she had the only kindergarten class in that town. And it was Valentine's Day, and all the children brought her gifts on that day. And... She knew the kids, she knew their parents. And the first one was a son who was the son of a florist in the city, in the town. And he handed the gift to the teacher. She held up the box and she could kind of tell. She says, I'll bet these are flowers, aren't they? And the, the little boy said, that's right. And he was excited and she thanked him. Then you have another child who was the candy store owner's son. She held up a heart-shaped box uh, from that child and said, I, I know what these are, right? These are candy. And the child said, that's right. And was excited. The final gift was from a son who, whose father ran the local liquor store. And so the teacher held up the box, and this one happened to be leaking out of a corner of it. And so she takes her finger, touches it, and goes, is this wine? And the son says, no. And the lady goes, well, let me try again. Champagne? He goes, no, no. And she said, well, what is it? He said, a puppy. <laughs> What's the point? Well, the point is that gifts are a good thing, but only if you understand them properly. And that's not just true for kindergarten teachers. That's also true for those of us in the body of Christ. We're on the topic of gifts right now, which is why I chose that that little joke. And Paul's on the topic of gifts in chapter 4. But his purpose in bringing up this topic in Ephesians 4 is to implore the church to see itself not as a group of individuals, or for that matter, even as two groups, Jew and Gentile in Paul's day, But he wanted to remind them that the church was a united group of one body. Remember, we talked about this last week. And last week, as he got into that topic, he listed all the ways in which we are already spiritually united, though we might see ourselves as otherwise. We have one spirit. We came in through one confession of faith and one Lord and on and on. We talked about that last week, right? And Paul now... As he gets into this topic again in chapter 4, as he moves forward in chapter 4, he's going to move the argument forward one more step by explaining there is yet one more way in which we are all united in the body. And that way has to do with the spiritual gifts that he has appointed to the body. Now in this chapter, chapter 4, you find one of three places in the New Testament where Paul addresses 
this idea of the body of Christ being equipped with gifts. Today's teaching is not going to go very far into the text, so we're not going to get into the discussion of gifts per se. We'll do that next week. For those of you who are here with us for a while, you'll remember a few years ago we were in 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians is one of the other two places in which you see a list of gifts. The third one is in Romans, so if you're in the Sunday school hour with me, we'll eventually get to it in there as well. But putting that aside for a moment, there's something even more interesting for today that we need to get into, as Paul does. And it begins in verse 7. And so let's start where Paul does. Verse 7, Paul says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now I'm stopping there because this is a setup for where Paul's going through the rest of the chapter. And Paul says, as further proof that the body of Christ is united by a common faith, he adds that each of us has received, as he calls it, a measure of God's grace, and it came to us in the form of a gift, he says. And we know he's talking here about spiritual gifts because he'll talk more about it as he goes deeper in the chapter. Spiritual gifts. These are abilities that are assigned to the individual believer by the Holy Spirit at the moment you come to faith. It is a gift of the Lord to the believer as a consequence of entering into the new covenant. You may remember, as I said, about a few years ago when we were in 1 Corinthians and we talked a little bit about gifts there. And when we did, we learned that spiritual gifts are assigned to us at the moment of faith by the Spirit and they're assigned according to the will of God. There is not a lobbying process. You cannot apply for them or wish for them or go seek and find them. These are things that are given by God's will. He determines the spiritual gift that each believer gets as they come into faith. And our ability to serve in that gift will forever remain under the control of the Holy Spirit even as you serve in it. So in other words, it's not like a superpower where once I obtain it, I am free to do with it whatever I choose. That's Marvel Comics, that's not the Bible. In the case of our spiritual gifts, even our ability to operate in it remains under the control of the Holy Spirit such that He might not allow us to work in it in a certain situation, though He may allow it in others. This is true not only for us, by the way, but it was also true for Christ himself when he was incarnate and walking the earth. You may remember in the Gospels, there's a point when he's moving around in the Galilee and he goes from Capernaum back to his hometown of Nazareth. And it says in the scriptures in Mark that he could not perform any miracles there because they were not believing in him. The Holy Spirit prevented Christ from performing miracles in that location. That's in keeping with Christ being not only all God, but all man. He, he was dependent on the Holy Spirit for that power to work miracles while he was in the form of man. And so similarly for us, we have that same dependence. And by the way, that's the very purpose of a spiritual gift. That is, it glorifies Christ through our service to the body. And if it's going to glorify Christ, then it must be that Christ himself is the centerpiece of that work. That it's not in our own power, it's not our own doing, it's not our own planning. Christ is there working through us. Now Paul has raised this topic here in chapter 4 of spiritual gifts, as I said, as further proof for the unity of the body. And here's his argument. All believers receive a gift from Christ, not just the Jews or the Gentiles or some of us, the special ones. It's a common experience for all of us to have these gifts. And his argument goes deeper than merely common experience. Paul is referring here to the marriage covenant. Because when a man and a woman entered into a marriage covenant in their day, and in their day that would have been called a betrothal, We might use the term engagement, but it's not a fair comparison because in their culture, a betrothal was a marriage. You have to divorce to get out of a betrothal in their day. 
So to signify that they had entered into this agreement, it was customary for the bride to receive gifts from the prospective groom as a way of symbolizing the covenant had been created, this betrothal had been established. And typically the gift took the form of a ring or some bracelet. Often the ring was put in her nose. You may remember from how Isaac and Rebekah came to be betrothed in Genesis 24. Abraham sends the servant to go find a wife for his son Isaac and sends him back to his homeland. And this is the story where the guy says, Lord, show me a lady that will water all my camels. After this woman spends who knows how long watering all these camels unexpectedly, you read this in Genesis 24:22. When the camels had finished drinking, the man, the servant, took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing ten shekels in gold. In other words, he was acting at that point using those symbols to betroth her to the groom that would await her back in Abraham's house, that is Isaac. So the societal rules of engagement or of betrothal have certainly changed, right? We call it engagement now. It's not legally binding and so on. But there's something that hasn't changed. Men still give the girl a ring to symbolize that there has now been something new established. And Paul, I think, is referring to this practice because, as you know from Scripture, Christ is our groom and we, the body, are his bride. So because we've entered into a covenant with him through our faith, we receive a betrothal gift. And we don't receive a piece of jewelry we receive a spiritual gift because we've entered into a spiritual relationship. Notice in verse 7, Paul uses the word gift in the singular. And that's one of a couple of places I would take you to support my view that we don't receive multiple gifts. We might have multiple talents. We might have multiple abilities. But it's my contention that everyone in the body of Christ receives one spiritual Gift. Now, the reason that can be confusing is the fact that you can use a spiritual gift in a variety of ways. For example, a person who has a gift of service may put that gift to work in teaching. Or they may put that service gift to work in counseling or in praying for others, not just cleaning toilets. You see my point? So if someone has a gift to serve and they do it through teaching, you might think they have a gift of teaching. That's not necessarily the case. Or someone who has a gift of teaching, like I believe I do, I might use that gift in the course of pastoring or counseling or even as an evangelist. But that doesn't mean I have a gift of evangelism. You see my point, right? I'm not going to follow my sword over this. It's not the most important point for the morning. But what I'm getting at, though, is each of us has at least one, if not only one. And so that begs a question, doesn't it? If we all have a supernatural gift given to us by Christ, its purpose was to empower us into service, well then... Doesn't that beg the question, are we serving with it, right? Doesn't it begin to raise the question of what am I doing with my gift? Or for that matter, do you even know what your gift is? We'll talk more about that topic as we go further into the text. For now, Paul says this is a measure of his grace for us. The word measure in Greek would suggest that some gifts represent a greater share of grace than others. And that might reflect the fact that some are more important to the body than others. For example, the gift of apostleship or the gift of prophet in the early church. Clearly those offices, those measures of God's grace were more impactful, more important to the body than some other gift would be. That is not to say that those people were more important. It simply acknowledges the fact that God dispenses His grace as He chooses, and He may do more in some cases than in others. Nevertheless, it's a common experience. No one's left out. So again, if all believers are gifted by the same Spirit... Well, then it must be that God intends for all members of the body to be equal participants in the life of the body. And friends, that's the argument that Paul's making. The Lord has made his desire for our unity as a body crystal clear because he gave all of us a gift 
to use within the body. And that means he expects us all to work arm in arm, without prejudice, without haughtiness, and contrary to any teaching you might hear, we cannot erect new barriers within the body to segregate ourselves in any way, whether the old-fashioned ways of Jew versus Gentile, or whether it's by some new method we come up with that makes us feel better about ourselves. There's no room for that in the body of Christ, none whatsoever. Paul's going to elaborate more on this later. But the conclusion I'll draw for us this morning, before we go into the next topic, is simply this. And I say this on the authority of Scripture. Every believer in here has been given a spiritual gift. And therefore, it must be that all of us are called by God to put that gift to work in this body for as long as you are called to this body. There are no exceptions. There is no place in the scripture that I can go to that says, oh yeah, for you, you can sit on the sidelines and do absolutely nothing while you're here. Just show up and go home. Doesn't matter. In fact, you don't even have to show up sometimes. You know, I'm being facetious, but that's the problem, right? Have you ever considered that your spiritual gift plays a role in ensuring the proper unity of this body? Which is to say, if you withhold your spiritual gift from this body, you are contributing to some degree to the instability, to the disunity of this body, that God in His infinite wisdom assembled just the people He wanted in this place for a time, and He distributed gifts in just such a fashion that if everyone here does exactly what they're called to do, it'll all just work. Which may beg another question, which is if something ain't working to your satisfaction, maybe part of the problem is we don't have everybody at work. I want to encourage this. I don't want to make anybody feel down about it. But I also don't want to back off on Scripture's conclusion, Paul's conclusion, which is that there's a purpose behind your gifting. And that purpose needs to be met. Paul, as I said, will elaborate more on this, but I want to go forward because Paul inserts at this point in chapter 7 a brief sidebar, I'll call it, from the Old Testament. And in this sidebar, Paul wants us to understand what the Messiah had to do in order to grant us these gifts. Gifts that some of us may be taking for granted or leaving dormant. And Paul gives us this explanation in verses 8 through 10, one of the most fascinating parts of the New Testament right here today. Ephesians 4.8, he says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, well, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Intrigued? I hope so. All right, in verse 8, Paul quotes from the Old Testament, where he's quoting from his Psalms, Psalm 68, 18. And Paul paraphrases that verse so that he can better reveal to us its true prophetic meaning. Let me show you what I mean. I'm using the NASB, the New American Standard, as my chosen translation. Back in Psalm 68, verse 18, this is what it reads in the NASB. You have ascended on high, you have led captive your captives, you have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. Now you notice in the English translation that I just read from, the translators phrased line 2 of that verse to say, Christ received gifts among men. Do you see that? But Paul, when Paul quotes from that verse in Ephesians, look how Paul quoted it. Paul says, Christ gave gifts to men. In fact, if you go look in the literature around this part of the Bible, you'll see all this debate about whether Paul got it wrong, or did he get it right, or what are we to make of it, etc. 
Well, it's not that complicated. I'm not sure why it's such a controversy. Because if you go to the Septuagint, the Septuagint is the Jews' own translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And you look at how they translated this first. This is what you find once it's obviously translated again into English. And just as another point of confusion, in the Septuagint, Psalm 68 is actually numbered Psalm 67. But anyway, here's the verse. You have gone up on high. You have led captivity captive. So far it sounds about the same. But listen to how they word the next part. You have received gifts for men. Yea, they were rebellious that you might dwell among them. You understand now what's actually being said in Psalm 68? From the Septuagint, you get to see that what Paul said is actually correct. The psalmist said that Christ received gifts, yes, but he received them for men. That is, to hand off to men. The Father gave his Son gifts so that his Son could then give those to men. They are the spiritual gifts that Paul is talking about, which the Father bestows on his children in faith by means of Christ's Spirit. Who gives us the gift. So it's simple. The Father is the one determining our gifts. His Son receives all the glory and power from the Father, including being the one to assign those gifts to His children through the Spirit. Alright, so why am I spending so much time on this? Well, the rest of Psalm 68.18, the one that Paul quoted from, it explains the occasion upon which these gifts are made available. On what occasion are gifts given out? Well, the psalmist says that the Messiah will give gifts to men when he ascends on high. Now, you know, I'm sure what that is, right? The ascension of Christ. That's the reference to Christ's ascension into the throne room of God to sit at the right hand of the Father. The book of Acts records that moment in chapter 1. This is after Jesus' death and resurrection. He hung around on the earth for 40 days, we're told in Scripture, making appearances to the disciples so that he could demonstrate conclusively that he was living again. But after 40 days, it was time for him to go back to the throne room where he came from originally. And in Acts 1, you read this, in Acts 1, 9, after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, while the disciples were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who's been taken up from you into heaven, he will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. We, we call this moment the ascension of Christ, because he ascended. He was here, and he was raised up into heaven. Okay, now, here's where it gets interesting. Paul seizes on this in the psalm, and he says, now, what does it mean when it says he ascended? And in verse 9, Paul concludes that Jesus' ascent into heaven was from a place in the lower parts of the earth. Now that lower place he's talking about is a place that the Old Testament calls Sheol. It's the name the Old Testament gives to this lower part of the earth. And to understand what Paul's talking about, we need to learn a little bit this morning about Sheol. The Bible teaches us that no one can approach the holiness of God because of our sin. God is holy. God is perfect. And he is just in all ways. So friends, if sin enters into the presence of God, his perfect nature will lead him to bring proper judgment against that sin instantaneously. Which is why Adam and woman hid from God after the fall in the garden. Perfect justice requires that sin be judged. God cannot do otherwise because if God were to allow sin to abide in his presence, that would be an imperfect, unjust outcome. So God is compelled by his own nature to judge sin if it enters into his presence. Now, under the law of Moses which God gave Israel, he gave them a sacrificial system 
that they were to practice as part of the law. And in that sacrificial system, he's teaching them principles about this very problem. God would dwell with men, with Israel, but he did so only in a tabernacle behind walls and curtains out of view. The Shekinah glory of God was in the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle, above a place called the mercy seat. And in that place, his glory was hidden away from the eyes of sinful men behind all of those barriers. Sinful men could not see it or become associated with the glory of God because to do so would have led to instant death. God himself says this in Exodus when he speaks to Moses, Exodus 33:19. He says to Moses, I myself will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. The Lord did make a way, though, for one man, called the high priest, to enter into that special place one time each year for atonement, for the atonement of the people. We call that Feast of Yom Kippur today. And the high priest would make sacrifice in the process of entering into that place, the Holy of Holies. He would sacrifice animals to atone for his own sin so that then he could cleanse himself sufficient that he could walk into that room. But even that wasn't good enough. He then burned incense within the room before he walked in so that once he got in there, it was so clouded with smoke he couldn't see anything and and just was in a room full of smoke. That's how much effort the high priest had to go to every year to avoid dying from entering into the presence of the glory of God. But what it was teaching to Israel was that these things are a picture of Of heavenly things. The book of Hebrews says that the tabernacle and everything that took place within it is a pattern, a picture of what actually is true in the throne room of God. The tabernacle taught Israel, you know, you need a blood sacrifice in order to atone for sin before you can enter into my presence. And it taught that sin has to be judged in that way. Only that way. Otherwise, you will have to die for your own sin. But it also taught that a death of an animal was not sufficient to pay for the sin of men. Because every year the high priest had to repeat this process of sacrificing an animal before he could go back into the Holy of Holies at Yom Kippur. And the point, the Hebrews writer tells us, the point of this to Israel was the problem of your sin is not being solved by the blood of animals because every year you're in the same predicament again. Something better is going to have to happen to satisfy the wrath of God for your sin. Otherwise, when you die, that blood of a bull or a goat isn't going to be sufficient to have addressed your sin debt before God. That's the fundamental problem every human being faces on earth right now. Without somebody or something taking away the debt we have before God for our sin, we're in jeopardy. It's just a waiting game until we die, and then we're going to face that jeopardy. So, God made a provision available in the form of Jesus Christ, a Messiah. When Jesus died on the cross, he shed his blood to make the one and only payment for the sin of mankind. Anyone covered by that sacrifice will never need any other sacrifice for sin because that one blood atonement is sufficient, we're told. The Father accepts that sacrifice as full payment. So, because of Christ's sacrifice and our faith in that sacrifice, when we die... Our body goes in the grave. It goes to dust. But the spirit in us, the part that's eternal, we enter directly into the presence of Christ and the Father, we're told in Scripture. We can do so without fear of judgment. We're not going to show up there worrying about what the outcome is going to be because the judgment that we had coming for our sin was already poured out on Christ and paid for at that point. No more payments required. We're ready to go to heaven any day. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's why I'm bringing all of this up, besides the fact that it's just a good reminder. Right? Here's why you're hearing it this morning. What about all of those saints 
who had saving faith, but they died prior to Christ's death on the cross. What about them? For example, what happened to Abraham when he died? The Bible says he was a man of faith, based on his faith in God's promises. In Genesis 15:5, we read this. God took Abraham outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then Abraham believed in the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. So the Bible says Abraham was a righteous man just by his faith in that proclamation from God. Which means Abraham was assured by God that he would be protected from God's wrath for his sin. That on the day he died, he'd be welcomed into God's presence with no fear of condemnation. But hold on, hold on. Abraham lived long before Christ did, long before Christ died on the cross. When Abraham died, Christ had yet to sacrifice himself for Abraham's sin. Therefore, Abraham's soul could not have entered into the presence of God. As his body was buried into the tomb, where did his soul go? He could not have entered into the presence of God. There was yet not a sacrifice made for his sin. See the dilemma? For that matter, where did all the Old Testament saints go? Here's a good one. John the Baptist. John the Baptist died while Jesus was still walking the earth alive. John the Baptist could not have gone straight into the heavenly throne room, not his spirit. So that's the dilemma that we're going to address this morning. Scripture says that God provided a place of comfort for the spirits of these people in the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints. He did so until the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. And the Bible calls this place Sheol. You'll see an occasional reference to it in the Old Testament here and there. For example, when Jacob, Abraham's grandson, back in Genesis, when Jacob learns that his favorite son, Joseph, has been killed by wild animals, which you all know that was a lie, right? But his brothers told him that. And he finds out this news, and Jacob is in such distress over the death of his favorite son, Joseph. Here's what he says. Genesis 37:33. Then Jacob examined it, speaking of the coat that had been torn up. He says, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. So Jacob said, my sadness is going to kill me, and I'm going to end up in Sheol. Now remember, Jacob was an Old Testament saint, just like his father, Isaac, just like his grandfather, Abraham. He was righteous by faith, the Bible says. So like his father and grandfather before him, the penalty for his sin was not going to be held against him. As we would say today, Jacob was a saved man. And yet here he is saying, I'm going to go down to Sheol. Why isn't he talking about going up? To heaven, like we would talk about today. Well, again, because Old Testament saints understood they could not enter into the presence of God until the Messiah came. So for the meantime, they were going to go down to a place called Sheol. So what is Sheol exactly? Well, it's a place where God held the souls of those who died prior to Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And it's actually two places. One part of Sheol held the souls of Old Testament saints like Abraham, like Jacob. They lived in a place of comfort where they awaited the Messiah who would then come and pay for their sins. And as I just explained, until Jesus paid that price, no one could enter into God's presence. So they needed a temporary home like this. Now, because it was a place of comfort, and it was also the place where Abraham himself was being held for a time, it came to be called 
Abraham's bosom. You ever heard that term? All that means is the place of Abraham's comfort. So it became known as Abraham's bosom. But Sheol was more than just that. Remember I said it's two places? In Sheol, there are two sides. One side is Abraham's bosom. But the other side holds the souls of all those who have died without faith. We would say unbelievers. That part of Sheol goes by a different name. It's not called Abraham's bosom. The Bible calls it Hades, which is the Greek word for the place we call hell. And as the name suggests, that side of Sheol is not a place of comfort. Jesus describes these two places at one point in Luke chapter 16 in a very short account about two men who die and go down into Sheol, but each of them have very different destinies. And I'll just read a short part of that passage in Luke 16:22. Jesus says, "Now the poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried in Hades." He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Now this is Jesus speaking, right? This is your Lord speaking about things he knows obviously well about. And this is before he died, when Sheol was still operating in this way. So I want you to imagine this place. By the way, every reference to it in the Bible is always in the same direction, down. It's not euphemism to say that hell is in the earth. It's literal. Below your feet, somewhere near the center of this earth, is hell and all the souls who have died in unbelief since Cain. And Jesus said, before he came, died, and resurrected, that place was packed. Abraham's bosom was filled with Old Testament saints. Hades had the souls of every unbeliever. I think it's also safe to assume that the population of Hades was much larger than the population of Abraham's bosom. And I say that because in Matthew 7... Verse 13, Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So if you can imagine this place, I don't know how our imaginations could equal it, but do your best. Some dark, terrifying place in the center of the earth where the souls of the unbelieving are being held, but somewhere near it, across from it, unreachable, is a place that's comforting. Somehow, God has made it a comforting place. And the souls in that place are of the Old Testament saints who understand they're waiting for something that must happen before they can be moved to where they really want to go. Now, you know and I know that when Jesus died, he lay in the tomb three days. His body did in the tomb. And it was during that time that Jesus' spirit descended into Sheol to spend three days in Abraham's bosom. While he was there... We have to imagine Jesus preached to the Old Testament saints that he comes to to greet who are down there waiting for him. Remember, the Lord only revealed bits and pieces of his plan of redemption to the Old Testament saints. Hebrews says that the fathers only knew little portions and parts of what God had planned. They had the faith in a promised provision for sin, but they didn't necessarily know exactly how or when God would make that provision. But their faith in it was sufficient to save them. Now, I want you to imagine the scene now. This is where your imagination is going to help. Imagine now this space filled with all these people as the Messiah himself comes to explain the full story to them. 
And best of all, they'd learn when he shows up that he had just come from paying the price for their sin, and so now he's going to accompany them into God's presence shortly after. Can you imagine what a joyous celebration it must have been in that place after waiting to finally meet the one you've had faith in without knowing him, but from a distance? And now he's ready to free you. But the Bible says also that Jesus preached to another crowd while he was there in Sheol. Peter says this in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then Peter adds this, speaking of his spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. And then he goes on. Peter says, Jesus preached to the souls of the condemned who were suffering in Hades, the place he calls a prison here. Now, at first you might wonder, well, why did Jesus have to preach to those folks? Is the Bible suggesting Jesus gave them a second chance of some kind? Well, we know the answer to that question is no. Because Scripture is abundantly clear. Hebrews 9.27 says there is no second chance following death. And there's a more important reason why that's true. There's a theological reason why that cannot be true. What is it that saves us today? Faith. But Paul says plainly in Romans that what you see is not faith. Because what you can see is self-evident. It doesn't require faith. So Jesus witnessed to these people, but it required no faith on their part to accept the truth of who he was. It was self-evident at that point. He's standing before them supernaturally in Hades, preaching to them. Remember, sometimes the Lord uses our witness to bring people to faith and to salvation, but there are other times He will use your witness to bring condemnation against a hard heart. You and I are not in control of that, about the outcome, but it's sufficient to understand that God is not always speaking truth for the sake of changing someone's mind. Sometimes He's speaking truth to someone to confirm where they are. And a good example of that would be Pharaoh with Moses. So the Bible teaches that eventually, eventually, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow to the name of Christ. Eventually. I like to say that there are no such thing as unbelievers. They are just not yet believers. Because someday everybody is one. But here's the problem, friends. Confessing Christ only yields you salvation if you make that confession of faith before you die. I'm sure that the spirits in prison, when they saw Jesus arrive and begin to preach to them about Him and about the plan of salvation, I bet they were all confessing Him as Lord right then and there when they saw Him in Sheol. I doubt any of them were confused, right? But their confession was not a confession of faith because they could see Him. Therefore, that confession could not save them. What terrible mourning must have followed that news? And that brings us back to Paul and his explanation in Ephesians 4. Paul says Christ's soul descended into the lower parts of the earth. And Paul came to that conclusion because the psalmist says in Psalm 68 that the Messiah would take with him a host of captives. You see that phrase? The captives the psalmist is talking about are the souls of the Old Testament saints who were in Sheol waiting patiently for their Messiah. So Jesus' ascent starts from below the earth because of that reference. Because he's setting free captives in the course of his ascent. Remember, Jacob said, I'm going to go into the earth. He knew where he was going, right? So then after three days, Jesus ascends with the souls of the Old Testament saints. And at that time, the psalmist says, Jesus would give gifts to men. Of course, what he's referring to now are not the souls he's taking to heaven. The gifts part, well, that's for you and I. That's for the church. So the spiritual gifts he gives to us, starting at Pentecost and continuing on, 
Those followed his ascension ten days earlier when he set free the captives. The psalmist connects those two moments in that verse. So here's the point, friends. While the Old Testament saints are already enjoying the full presence of Christ in the throne room, the saints of the church who are on earth, we also have received a measure of God's grace even in the meantime. The measure of grace that unifies us all, this measure that we've received is this gift that He has left with us. It's your confirmation that even as you await the opportunity to join them, you are assured you will one day be there. And we are unified even as we wait. And that's why Paul says in verse 10, The same Christ who descended into the earth for our sins and to reclaim those that were his in the Old Testament is the same Christ who ascended into heaven and is waiting for us there and has given us gifts in the meantime. He is the Lord both of the Old Testament saint and the New Testament saint. Or, as I think Paul meant it for his audience, He is the Lord of the Jew and of the Gentile. He has taken Jews back with him out of the Old Testament, and he is gifting Gentiles today in the meantime, proof to us that we are all united in a common experience through our faith. Not just some, but all. That's why he says that Christ did this to fill all things. That word in Greek is playru. It should be fulfill all these things, to fulfill all Scripture. And I could add, to fill all of us with his Spirit. This is theology that I hope will be useful to you at some point. For if you ever get into conversations with unbelievers about life, death, and what happens afterward, one of the classic questions they might throw at you as a way of discrediting the claims we make in Christ is that, well, what about all the people before Jesus? Now you have an answer. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your wisdom in the plan that began before the foundations of the earth and includes... Fairness and opportunity for everyone as as you uh, have afforded it, Father, that you had no one left out of the plan, no detail unaddressed. The wisdom of it, Father, is, is amazing. And it's also encouraging, Father, to consider that the spiritual gifts we each have now are proof to us that you count us among the children of God and that just as the Old Testament saints enjoyed in the past, we will one day enter into your presence with the full knowledge of who you are and what, what is uh, before us in eternity. In the meantime, Father, take what we've learned, use it to encourage our hearts, to defend our hope against the accusations of the enemy who might come against us to discourage us, and to give us greater purpose to use our gifts, Father, to encourage the unity that you intended. Help this little church meet all of those expectations. In your spirit, I pray, Father. Amen.